You are listening to the 33rd episode of Dave's Daredevil Podcast, where we find our horned hero on the hunt for his old sensei, but Elektra hunts him, and Kirigi is hunting her, making for a bizarre love triangle. Welcome to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, the show devoted to Marvel's man without fear, Daredevil. I am J. David Weeder, you can call me Dave, and not an ounce of this episode was lip-synced. As has been the custom for most of 2014, I am continuing to read through the Frank Miller run on the title. That continues this week, but a few things to go over before we jump in. There was to be an episode devoted completely to your emails with Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles coverage. Well, that didn't happen. The fact is, time just got the better of me. I had a lot of, well, sadly, housework to do, real-life stuff. And as I was going through the editing process, I was halfway through. I'd had the emails recorded. I was editing those and realized time is going to run out. And if I do not stop working on this, the episode will not come out on Sunday. So emails will be folded back into the show proper. You know, it looked good on paper. But in reality, the whole devil's advocate idea was just not going to pan out. And I feel like it was disingenuous to remove those from the episodes proper, so I apologize. They will be returning going forward, beginning this week. I'm going to be splitting up the emails between this episode and next week. At some point down the road, and I have not determined when, I will use the notes that I did for the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles issue and do a proper episode on that. Additionally, I kind of had a sketchy idea for a planned special for July. I have scrapped that for a while because there's a lot of work going into the Batman episode, episode 35, and the 50th episode are in the works. And right now, I'm on a work schedule that's not entirely compatible with a lot of podcast work, but that's going to change around mid-July. So somewhere down the road, I will be doing a few specials. Probably not until late this year or early next year. The big news this week was Wilson Fisk was cast. In the Daredevil Netflix series, he will be played by actor Vincent D'Onofrio. Let me tell you why this put a huge, huge smile on my face. D'Onofrio is not an actor that I like. It's something about his idiosyncrasies that have never really fully got me invested. Having said that, do I think he is a bad actor? Not at all. He has an engaging quality. And I think it's a quality Wilson Fisk needs. He's not somebody you like, yet he's going to engage you in conversation and charm you. And at the same time, while you're completely invested in this conversation, Wilson Fisk is going to be slitting your throat. D'Onofrio has this quality, and he has played villains wonderfully in the past. Men in Black, well, he was okay in that, but if you've ever seen The Cell, D'Onofrio was top-notch. So I could not be more excited about this casting. I think visually he looks the part without being over the top. And of course, you can't please everybody. There are people that are now complaining that they cast a white actor. Is this 10 years ago when people were complaining that Michael Clark Duncan, who once again had a great quality, a great physical quality, a great conversational voice, and people complained because he was not Caucasian. Now we're getting complaints that the cast is not very diverse because they cast a white guy. You know what? It's real, real simple. If an actor, regardless of race, fits the role, you cast that actor. 
Michael Clark Duncan was a superb kingpin. Granted, he chewed the scenery, but that's on the director. That's on that style of movie. He still had moments like slowly removing his jacket and his cufflinks, saying, Wesley, this is something you wouldn't understand. But regardless, I think D'Onofrio is going to knock this out of the park. I'm excited about Charlie Cox. Everything about this so far has screamed, this is for you, Daredevil fans. And speaking of Daredevil fans, let's jump into this week's issue. I don't have a lot for preamble, so we'll move this right along. Uh, Daredevil number 176 is this week's issue. It's the November 1981 issue. It came out in July, one day before some well-known wedding, I guess. People went to this wedding of Prince Charles and Princess Diana. It was kind of a big deal. I was four. I really don't remember it all that well. It was on TV, but it wasn't all that uh, interesting to me. I'd rather have switched over to the Bozo show where they were playing Superboy reruns. But in the midst of all this hoopla came this issue with a cover by Frank Miller. And the cover shows the sky filled with lightning and rain as we look at a scene on a crowded New York rooftop. And this is really just a chimney top, to be more accurate. We're looking up from a low angle. Daredevil is in the lower right-hand corner, looking angry, leaping at the reader, as Elektra is a bit higher. And she's leaping after him on the more left side of the page. Above that, poised to strike Elektra is Kirigi. I don't have a lot to say on the cover. There's nothing bad about it. It's not particularly boring, but I've never been drawn to this cover. And I'm a little ashamed to admit it, but I never noticed until doing the read-through for this week that Kirigi is even on the cover. He blends a little bit too much with the background. In some respects, it's striking because you have the hunter hunting Daredevil and the hunter hunting the hunter. And that's pretty much the status quo of this issue. Now to catch us up, Daredevil and Elektra infiltrated the hand last issue, with Elektra facing the big bad Super Ninja Kirigi who stumbled away with a sword in his chest. No, you heard that right, he's still stumbling around with a sword in his chest. An explosion has knocked out Daredevil's radar sense, so he's blinder than usual and finding his way around, learning to kind of live without it. And this is precisely where we pick up with Daredevil number 176, but first, a promo for a new podcast that was just released yesterday in terms of when this episode comes out. And it's one that is strong with the Force. So I will be right back after this. What's wrong, Star Wars fans? Disney. Disney killed the expanded universe. They killed the whole thing. It's dead. Every single book. Not just the novels, but the comics and the video games too. It's like they're just stories and Disney threw them out like stories. I hate them. Star Wars fans, relax. Here, have a Snickers. No one destroyed your Star Wars Expanded Universe. In fact, I'm going to give you a whole new opportunity to go back and explore all those books and comics that have helped to shape and mold this universe we love so much. Join me on the Star Wars Saga Cast, 
where I'll be walking through the various branches of the Star Wars Expanded Universe, much of it for my very first time. I'll be bringing you short episodes that review comics, longer episodes that explore the novels, and in-film commentaries, because you know you're just dying to hear what some random guy on the internet has to say about movies that you've seen a hundred times before. You know you are, so come along for The Star Wars SagaCast at thestarwarssagacast.com. In front of us is Daredevil number 176. The story was entitled Hunters. It was written and penciled by Frank Miller, inked by Klaus Janssen, lettered by Joseph Rosen, and colored by Glennis Ween. If you're following along, you want to catch this in reprint. It's reprinted in Daredevil Visionaries Frank Miller Volume 2 Trade Paperback, Daredevil by Frank Miller and Klaus Janssen Omnibus, and digitally through the Marvel Digital app, Comixology app, and Marvel Digital Unlimited. And the story begins with Dawn in New York and a homeless man sorting through some garbage and he spots a great find, a katana. Unfortunately, that katana is still embedded in Kirigi, the ninja Electra fought from last issue. As you can imagine, this ends badly for the homeless man as Kirigi kills him and then stumbles through the streets of New York, coming finally to an abandoned church. Once inside, Kirigi removes the offending blade and swears to find Electra and when he does, she will die. Also in some rough shape. Three days later is Matt Murdock. His radar sense has not returned, and that's starting to wear on him emotionally. Sitting on a perch outside the brownstone on a stormy night, he swears to Heather that he will get his radar sense back, even as she's trying to get him to get back in his tux and go out on the date that he promised her. Matt says that he has to find his old teacher, the man called Stick. Heather tries to talk him out of leaping off, but Matt does what he wants and almost misses a ledge on his first jump, but he keeps on moving. Heather wrestles with what to do and decides to throw on a coat and head out into the storm to figure out a way to help Matt. Unknown to Heather, she is being watched from a nearby rooftop by Electra, who swings off to trail Matt's current squeeze. Unknown to Electra, she, in turn, is being trailed as well by Kirigi. Let's talk a little bit about this first section. First off, the guy rooting through the garbage who finds Kirigi. I feel bad for this guy. Essentially, there's nothing to imply he's nothing but an innocent. Just trying to find his way, trying to find some food, or trying to find something he can pawn, and hey, here's this golden thing, a katana. A pawn shop will pay good money for that. No, that's not what's going to happen. You're going to have death by Super Ninja. However, I like that this happens at dawn because this... It gives us a context of time for where we are from last issue. It's only hours after that. Last issue looks like it took place in the late afternoon. And I say this because Foggy was still in court throughout the issue while the attack on the Sanctum was happening. Which to me implies since the end of the issue, Matt showed up at court after it was adjourned late afternoon. So we're looking at roughly 12 hours later. Kirigi has just been sitting there stewing in the filth of the garbage with a sword in his chest. I mean, I've had some rough nights before, but I never woke up in a garbage heap with a sword in my chest. Yeah, there's still time. There is an awesome shot of Kirigi right after he kills the guy where he's standing against the sunlight. The colors are phenomenal. The pose is great because he's got his head down. He looks very Shogun-ish. But the sun is huge, and it's really the colors that sell this panel. 
I'm sure New Dawn, Kyrgy Rising, I get the inference. I don't know that I need to point it out, but ultimately it's a cool looking shot and I want to give credit to the colors. Now something I didn't mention in the synopsis is as Kyrgy is making his way through the streets of New York, a kind cop actually stops and asks if he's okay and, well, Kyrgy thwacks the guy. That's the actual sound effect and I think it's pretty appropriate. And I'm pretty certain that that cop is dead. I think Kyrgy broke his neck. Kyrgy is like a honey badger. He just doesn't give a f Good guy, bad guy. If you get in his way, he's going to kill you. I mentioned the abandoned church, too, the eventual destination. And the church is described in the text as a temple. On first glance, I dismissed it. I didn't think about it. And then I came back to that as I'm going through and redoing my notes and checking over them. This is actually an important location. This church comes back. So earmark this. This is something seated here, this location, that's going to come back a few months from now. And of course, the church is more of the spiritual aspect of the hand. Judging by the bare bones sanctum, and of course the level of integrity, shall we say, that the hand was operating at within New York, it's nice to see that, at least in Kyrgy, there is some adherence to the spiritual nature of the hand. And by spiritual, I mean more mysticism. And mysticism is something that does play into the hand, but there's usually something to give you a suspension of disbelief with them. For example, Kyrgy mentions that the robes have chemicals in them that are healing, ointments or what have you, so he's going to sit and meditate and heal. So the mystical aspects have this sort of through line, at least a backbone of sorts, in pseudoscience. And I like that he has that explanation. It's not a great explanation, it's not a long page of expository dialogue explaining, well, these chemicals do this. It's very simple, which is why we almost believe, yeah, there could be ointments in there that heal or turn people to mist. Sure, I can buy that. Does it hold up upon real scrutiny? Not entirely, but it's not meant to. That's why it's a one-off line. But we move from Kirigi meditating and healing in his ointment robes to Matt and Heather, and this presents a bit of a conflict for me because Heather is actually, well, kind of being somewhat reasonable. I know, I know, it came out of my mouth. See, she's trying to tell Matt to not leap off when he's blind. Maybe he should quit being Daredevil. Now, I'm not saying he should, but I'm saying, when is Daredevil's duty done? He's avenged Jack Murdoch. He's done great things with fighting villains. At what point does Matt sit down and retire and say, this is enough? I'm not going to answer that question now, but it puts that on the table. Back to Heather being reasonable. The thing that stands out is she's asking Matt to keep his date with her. Matt has said, yes, I will go to this place at this time with you. And now, he's not doing that, he's sitting on a rooftop in his Daredevil costume brooding. Bear in mind, this is not a Daredevil that sees a crime in progress and is rushing out to stop it. This is a Daredevil who is moping because he doesn't have his radar sense. He's moping right after defeating four very powerful hand ninjas last issue, which was three days ago. You're telling me in three days, Matt, you haven't come to grips with the fact that Sure, you want to find your sensei. You want to work on your radar sense. I'm with you on that. Even if he quit being Daredevil, he would still want that just to function. But in three days, you haven't decided, hey, I should seek out Stick. You've been sitting here festering over this, and suddenly the night you have a date, we're talking about a matter of hours, you decide to tell Heather, no, no, I'm going to rush off and find my old sensei. That shows a little bit of selfishness. Now granted, we all know I'm not a big Heather fan. The sooner she's out of this book, the better. But I am a fan of Daredevil and Matt Murdock and being a man of integrity and a man of honor. And for this, I think Matt should have stepped up, done his duty for this relationship, and gone on the date. 
And then after that, if he wants to go out and seek stick, he's free to. With his behavior here, he's like a scorned child who's had his toy taken away and he's throwing a fit. And it shows that much more when he leaps and almost misses a jump. Now this scares Heather. It scares the reader. It alarms us because we're used to an agile daredevil. And this is really oddly the first time that we see Matt going through his normal routine and missing something like this. Now you can say that when the ninjas almost attacked and Electra saved him, sure, that's not his normal routine. This is Daredevil leaping. This is Daredevil, for lack of a better explanation, at leisure. This is you and I getting in a car and driving. Something we do all the time. This isn't you and I in a bar fight. In a bar fight, I'm not going to be much good. You're on your own. And I'm sure several of you will say the same thing. But get me behind the wheel of a car to go from point A to point B? Sure, I'm your guy. And then we get into Heather fretting. Trying to figure out how she can be there for Matt. And I think this is a fair frustration. Despite what I feel about Heather, negatively or positively, mostly negative, how can she know how to help Daredevil? Now granted, this underscores something I said last week when you know Matt was laying on the floor dying, Electra bandages him. And I wondered if Heather would even know what to do, would she panic? This definitely underscores that. This indecision and this insecurity definitely proves to me that I had something there. Even when she takes action here, Heather has no plan. For Electra's zaniness, at least she knew how to bandage and what to do to make sure Daredevil, you know, didn't die. Heather's going out on a stormy night, presumably in this gown and a coat, with no real plan. She's got to find Stick. Well, she doesn't know who Stick is. She doesn't really know where to start. She knows next to nothing about it. Matt said a few things that Stick used to be his old sensei. Beyond that, nothing. And credit where it's due, Heather's heart is in the right place. I do not want to dismiss that. Good on Heather for wanting to help Matt instead of, you know, blowing him off. And she would have been right to. We've seen Heather dump Matt for less. And yet here she is saying, I'm going to take another path. I'm going to seek this out. I'm going to try to help however I can. Is it misguided? Yes. Are her intentions correct? Absolutely. Do I think in an emergency situation, Heather could handle Daredevil's world versus Matt Murdock's world? No. Granted, I know you're going to give evidence that when Dr. Octopus was attacking, she acted with the piece of glass to save him. That was panic. There was no plan in that, and she herself was in danger. For something like this, Heather is out of her depth, and rightly so. She's not built for the superhero world. Somebody who is, is Elektra. And Electra is following Heather. I want to point this out. Electra is watching the brownstone as Heather leaves. Presumably following Heather because Matt's been gone for at least a few minutes. Keep that in mind. I'll come back to it. This begins the sequence of events with Heather hunting Stick, Daredevil looking for Stick, Electra following Heather, and behind all of this is Kirigi. And that's the scary thing. He doesn't strike Electra when she's sitting there watching. He's waiting. He's waiting for the right moment. Kind of like the horror movie monster waiting and slowly walking, assuming he'll catch up with the murder victim. I know what you're thinking, and you're right. Matt swung off just a few minutes ago. Where did Matt go? Let's take a look at that. Elsewhere, at Josie's bar, Turk has just been caught cheating at a game of cards, and he finds himself staring down a few gun barrels. Luckily, Daredevil is there. Oh, he's not there to get Turk out of this jam. He's there to ask where he can find his old mentor, Stick. But things get a little rougher than Daredevil expected as somebody pistol whips the man without fear and he is suddenly at the mercy of Turk 
and Turk's gun pointed right at Daredevil's head. But Josie isn't having any of this in her <clears throat> respectable establishment. So Turk and his friend Grotto heave Daredevil out into the back alley to cap him. But Hornhead comes to and beats the ever-loving snot out of them, leaving Turk stuck in a garbage can as Daredevil takes off into the night. Incensed, Turk decides to take advantage of the clearly handicapped Daredevil. He's going to do some hero hunting. At a seedy pool hall, Heather is asking about Stick and finds a muscle-bound shirtless man named Snuff who offers to help her find the sensei for a price. As they leave the pool hall, Heather clarifies that there is to be no funny business and brandishes her loaded gun to underscore the point. A short while later, at Court Industries, a janitor is startled to find Turk and Grotto have managed to break into this secure facility and they're demanding something strong enough to clobber Daredevil. Speaking of Daredevil, he's muscling a couple of low lives on the rooftop who point him to Wall-Eye Pike, who got hustled by Stick at a pool hall. As Daredevil leaps off, both men take aim at him with their guns, but both end up with a side to the chest for their troubles. Elektra is still, or now, on Daredevil's trail, but Kirigi is still on hers. Alright, let's talk about Turk. Turk has vision. Cheating at cards. At Josie's. That's his vision. Let me explain what Turk's vision is. He thought he could swindle this. Even though he lays down two ace of spades. Which, of course, there's only one to the deck. Bear in mind, Turk looked at the cards, fully realized what cards he had, and plunked those down on the table. For as much of a fail as Turk does... Daredevil kind of didn't think this through. He kind of went into Josie's with a plan that would normally work, but, you know, guns are drawn, Daredevil's surrounded, and he tries to play it cool, and for his trouble, he gets pistol whipped. Now, thankfully, Josie prevents Turk from putting a bullet in Daredevil's head, but it wasn't by much. A moment longer, and Daredevil would be dead. Instead, we get treated to a comedic fight. But at the end of this fight, Turk takes a bit of a turn to the dark. He goes from a completely comedic character to about to kill Daredevil. It's not a complete 180 because, well, Turk's a criminal. Quite blatantly, quite clearly. But at the same time, Turk has been kind of a reliable laugh riot. Now I think about it, though, he's sick dogs on Daredevil... He's thrown Daredevil into a pipe. Even though this is more ostentatious in terms of a vindictive, potentially homicidal side of Turk, it's not completely out of character. Daredevil mentions that Rain kind of works to not restore his radar sense, but hitting it gives him at least a form of what's around him. People balked at this in the movie. I liked it in concept, maybe not the execution we saw in the movie, because... Animal echolocation is a real thing. Sure, bats have a sort of sonar sense, but it's primarily based on sound coming back, bouncing back. Radar sense on Daredevil's side is a little bit more advanced, and to be honest, it's a bit undefined. So the rain hitting the ground, giving Daredevil at least an idea of where things are, has a logical sense in nature. And then we have Heather meeting Snuff. I want to be clear on what plays out in this scene. Heather walks into a seedy dive bar. She comes up to a shirtless, muscle-bound man who has to be slathered in baby oil. I mean, he's got to be shiny. And she ends up giving him money and leaving the bar. I mean, the guy looks like a Chippendale dancer. I'm not an expert on such matters. And forgive me if I'm overstepping here. But I'm pretty certain that Snuff is a male prostitute. And I'm even more certain that if that is true, then Snuff has completely misunderstood what's occurring here. Because as soon as they get to the alley, he says, this is a nice place to get more friendly. That's when Heather brandishes the gun. My theory is that Snuff, being a male prostitute, mistook the meaning of Heather trying to find Stick. 
And so this was to be a transaction of a different sort, which suddenly changed. Again, I'm not an expert on male prostitutes and how that whole transaction works. I know that there's protocol. I'm just not aware of it. If I'm wrong, feel free to email me, dave at daredevilpodcast.com. So moving from that business to another business, I gotta say I fear for Cord Industries. When their super industrial, super secure facility is infiltrated not by a skilled hand of Daredevil, and not by the technologically advanced Mauler armor, but by freaking Turk and Grotto? I mean, their antics are getting ridiculous in a great way. Turk and Grotto are starting to become the R2-D2 and C-3PO of the Daredevil world. They're often antics that are tied to the story and end up, you know, contributing to it. But essentially, they're kind of their own entities. And I gotta point it out. I have to show it to you if you're looking at the book, Panel 6, When Turk and Grotto Enter Court Industries. There is a Superman cameo. It is a very clear cameo. You've got the standard Superman body. You've got the cape. You've got the belt and trunks. You've even got the shield. The S is not there for, you know, copyright reasons, but that is Superman. Perception and presentation count. Not just in comic books. Not just in the page that we're looking at, but also in the context of the character. In the context of Daredevil. As soon as these two hoods realize, just like Turk did, that Daredevil's a little off that he's not quite making the jumps he would normally do, that people are able to sneak up on him, they decide to take a shot. All I'm saying is it's a really good thing Elektra decided to change paths and follow Matt instead of Heather. When did that happen? I don't know. Because calling back to that scene, Matt had basically swung off a few minutes ago. Heather sat there and fretted for a good two, three minutes. I mean, it had to have taken five to six minutes to get out the door, all told. Matt's already made some distance. Now, Electra is a natural hunter. She's a natural tracker, so fine. But a uh, presentation kind of threw me off a little. Because she was following Heather, now she's following Matt. But that worked out well, because she got to stab a couple of people. So now, everybody is on the trail of Walleye Pike. Walleye Pike, a lowly pool hustler, is brushing his teeth in his rundown apartment when Electra crashes through his window, demanding to know where Stick is. Pike refuses to tell her anything for about three seconds, then, with a sigh to his face, he directs her to Duke's pool hall. Pike is about to settle himself down when Electra leaves when Turk, wearing the Mauler armor, comes smashing through the wall, demanding to know where Stick is. Again, Duke's pool hall. Turk leaves, Pike plops some Alka-Seltzer to a glass of water to settle his nerves, but Daredevil shows up moments later. Duke's pool hall. Finally, Pike has had just enough of New York. He's out. He's packing his bag, he's heading out, but Snuff and Heather are waiting for him in the hall with Heather's gun. Before they even ask, Duke's pool hall. So the story then moves to Walt Disney World. No, kidding. At Duke's pool hall, Stick, an older blind man, is hustling a game of fool, and that is not setting well with the sore losers who are beginning to gang up on him when Heather shows up, gun in hand. Daredevil shows up a moment later and fights off the sore losers, which irritates Stick because he had that situation on lock. That argument doesn't get far because Turk, in the Mauler armor, crashes through the wall of Dukes. Turk is ready to throw down, but Daredevil easily dodges the attacks and takes Turk out with one punch. But outside the pool hall, Elektra suddenly realizes that Kirigi is there and he's ready to strike. The two fight across the docks, but Elektra slams a semi-truck into Kirigi, pushing the relentless ninja forward and bursting into flames, the truck and the ninja drop into the ocean. However, Kirigi, not the truck, rises from the water, all aflame and still coming, so Elektra cuts his head off. Elektra is victorious, but she feels empty, and she knows that a conflict with Daredevil is coming. 
The thing I took away from this section was poor Pike. As funny as this sequence is, you end up feeling bad for Pike of all people. You feel worse for Pike than you do for Matt. And I think the funniest standout moment in this run, one of two, one of two, I'll, I'll be fair, is Turk in the Mahler armor. I mean, Turk has just decided to slap this thing on sight unseen. Admittedly, the Mahler armor proved to be a match for Daredevil when the proper user was wearing it. Somebody who at least read the instruction manual. This is equivalent to you and I going from driving a car to driving a Harrier jet. It's that much more advanced, it's that much more complex, and that much different. That's why Turk gets taken out later with one punch. But you know, you gotta respect his vision. He decided to go for the brass ring and put on a very expensive, complex set of armor to go after Daredevil. And didn't see the failure in that. I can't help but laugh. I'm trying to keep a straight face and keep it together now, so I'm going to move on. So not only do you get Mauler armor, Turk, you also get Daredevil and Snuff and Heather with a gun. So Pike has decided to leave New York. I think, I think the kicker would be for me when Heather shows up with a male prostitute. I mean, he is obviously a male prostitute. I'm a little bit more secure with that now. But we, of course, get to Duke's, which was kind of a foregone conclusion, and we get the first official appearance of Stick. Now, you and I are more familiar with Stick. We've met him through Man Without Fear because of the way that this coverage has run. The main element of this issue that makes it stand out for me is the addition of Stick completes what I've been calling a reboot, and that's not true. That's not a correct term. It completes the renovation of Daredevil because we've pretty much seen these ingredients come in. Kingpin, Elektra, Hand Ninjas, and suddenly... This is the final ingredient to this new soup. With Stick, the transformation from knockoff Spider-Man to Daredevil being his own distinct character is complete. The tapestry has been extended backwards and forwards. By making some organic tweaks to Daredevil's past, i.e. Elektra, i.e. Stick being a sensei, Daredevil becomes a more full character. Now granted, you would think I would talk about the battle between Kirigi and Elektra, and it is fierce. And even when Elektra hits him with a semi-truck, Kirigi keeps coming. The truck explodes, and Kirigi keeps coming, on fire. And I'm sure, like me, you're probably hearing the Terminator music. But the main thing about this is, when the battle is over, we get inside Elektra's head a little bit more than before. She knows Matt is hunting her. She knows that this is eventually going to lead to a conflict, which is going to end one of two ways. One, Matt is going to bring her in. Two, she's going to kill Matt. Here's the third option that's not on the table, though. If Elektra just leaves New York, doesn't come back, goes to Europe, continues what she was doing before, would Matt pursue her? Immediately, definitely no. Matt's got to deal with his radar sense first, and we're going to see that next week. After that, no, I don't think so. A, there's a reluctance on his part to do so, not just because of the way he feels about her and he in college. But additionally, she saved his life, and he knows who the Hand are, what they're capable of, and, you know, they were out to kill him. Additionally, let's be honest, Elektra knows Matt Murdock is Daredevil. She has the trump card. How can he bring her into the legal system and expect her not to use that as leverage? If he's not expecting that, then Matt's not as smart as we've seen him portrayed. So logically, the best thing to do is tell her, get out of New York, never come back. Because alternately, the only way he's going to be able to bring her to any kind of justice is to kill her, and Matt's not going to do that. So to me, even though the conflict is an interesting one, it's kind of a moot point, because not all the options are being considered by either party. So overall thoughts. Since taking over with 168, Miller has renovated Daredevil. 
We have arch villains in place. We have Electra, and now we're expanding backwards, exploring a as yet unseen period in Matt's origin. Miller has refined Melvin Potter from a cookie cutter villain to a captivating character. But I think Matt has suffered thus far in Miller's run because we've basically renovated the space Matt exists in. We've seen him take on challenges in this new space, but we haven't really gotten into Matt's headspace. Luckily, that'll change next week as we kind of close out this 1981, the year that changed Daredevil, period. The year everything got put on the table. So next week, my complaint gets answered because we look into the head of Matt Murdock. But before we do that, before we go and wrap up the show, the long-delayed return of emails. So I'm going to play a quick podcast promo, and then when we return... You, me, some email time. Hello, podcast listener. My name is Russell Bragg, and I host a podcast called The DC Comics Presents Show. Every episode, I talk about the DC Comics Presents comic starring Superman. I will be detailing all 97 issues, plus the four annuals. I will be spotlighting the DC character that Superman teams up with, plus I will be looking at the comic spinner rack to see what other comic books were on sale. So join me, Russell Bragg, for each exciting episode of the DC Comics Presents Show. Please go to the show's website at www.dccpshow.com for more information. That's DCCP. S-H-O-W. This is where I read the emails and correspondence from the listeners and spend some time with fellow Daredevil fans. I want to put you front and center. So I'm going to dive right into the email box which is dave at daredevilpodcast.com. And includes a very recent email. I made sure just before sitting down to record this that I had checked the email. First up is an email from Socrates, whose subject line is Daredevil Action Figures. Socrates writes, Hi Dave, in one of your shows you brought up the subject of DD Action Figures. I had a great figure as a kid that was a toy biz, I think, and it featured a noticeable boxing stance. I believe weird boots and gloves came with the figure. I also liked the Marvel Legends figure, but the Spider-Man body kept it from being better. It was too skinny. I think a Captain America body would have been better. The Bullseye Marvel Legend was fantastic, though. Has there ever been a Foggy figure or a Stiltman figure? Owl, Purple Man, Jester, etc. Keep up the great work. Best regards, Socrates Alvarez. Well, Socrates, the Daredevil figure that you mentioned was called Tank Attack Daredevil. I know. From the Web Force wave of the Spider-Man line. Daredevil had a small tank that would come apart and attach to him like armor. That's where the weird boots and gloves came from. It was a solid figure in my opinion, though some people complained that the red was too bright. But he was pretty beefy, which I liked. Daredevil's always been a lankier figure, but definitely built. He's got muscles. Unlike the first Daredevil from the Spider-Man Classics line, which I agree was way too thin, but I guess Toy Biz wanted to reuse that body for several more figures, which is why they created it in such a generic thin stance. There was a better Daredevil in one of the later waves of Marvel Legends with a more well-rounded, more even body, much better sculpt. The sculpt even included texture on his costume, wrinkles in the costume, and a paint scheme that was a middle-of-the-road shade of red, and then an orangish red for the gloves and boots and insignia. Then they took that and blew it up to a 12-inch scale for their Icons line, 
and gave the bodysuit a darker red theme. And I recommend both of those. I have both of them. And I second how awesome the Marvel Legends Bullseye is, which, I mean, it has a great sculpt. It has great articulation. It has a great, awesome paint job. My only complaint with that figure is that he didn't come with any weapon accessories. To date, there haven't been any figures of Foggy or the Owl or Purple Man or Jester. The closest thing that we got was a Minimate Stiltman figure. To me, it showed how fun the figure could be. But he came packaged with Iron Man. I guess that kind of makes sense, but why not Daredevil? Minimates is always repackaging those things. I want a Daredevil Stiltman 2-pack. Hopefully with the Netflix series, there's a change and we get a wave of Daredevil figures, including some of his lesser-known villains. But that's a solid, solid question, Socrates. It's always nice to talk action figures, so thank you for dropping an email to the show. Next up is an email from Dale Russell, whose subject is Podcast Gold. Dale writes, I was convinced to check out your podcast by the Irredeemable Shag. I listened to all his podcasts, and the last thing I needed was another podcast. Every time I turned around, he was talking about your show, and I'm a long-time Daredevil fan. So, decided, what the hell, hope it doesn't suck. The good thing is, it doesn't suck, and you can quote me on that. I listened to all 22 episodes in three days. Wife was not happy. I am now a dedicated listener. Good show. My origin story is easy. I could buy two comics after church every Sunday at the local Five and Dime. There were no good new comics out, so I picked up two issues of Daredevil. It was Frank Miller's run. I read it and decided that Daredevil was my new favorite Marvel superhero. I had a new one every week at that age. I really only collected during the Frank Miller years. I did get a few older comics and a couple of the essentials. I'm not a Bendis fan, so I did not collect any of that one. I'm going to try the Wade run. Keep up the good work. Dale, I really appreciate you writing that. Even though it means Shag will be getting another royalty check. But I'm glad to hear that you like the show, not just for my own insecure nature. It helps that, don't get me wrong. But my hope is to be making a show that people can get into that does justice to the character and the stories I'm covering. I get that the Frank Miller years were a big draw. The book was hopping, as we will be seeing in the next coming weeks, or we have been seeing. But I'm really glad to hear that you're taking a look at the essentials. Because that older stuff is fun. I mean, admittedly lopsided, it's not quality in some places, but it's fun. Even when an issue is a stinker, I still felt like I was enjoying it, because it was a stinker. Now Bendis, he's an acquired taste. His Daredevil almost has to be read in chunks to get material that amounts to a single Miller issue, but it does have merit. I do highly, highly recommend Wade's run. Despite the ongoing narrative, I consistently felt, and still feel, like the individual issues are satisfying. And please, relay my apologies to your wife. I didn't mean to take you away from your spouse's time and deprive her of your affections. And my apologies to you for having to put up with my voice for three days straight. I can barely do it for one day. But, and I put this out to all of you listeners, if the show starts to suck, and I'm serious here, let me know. Tweet me, email me, Facebook me, something. I appreciate feedback. Sure, I'm not always happy to hear negative feedback, but if it's constructive, I appreciate it in the long run. That's not to say I won't ask you to indulge me here and there. But if the overall quality of the show declines, just let me know. I need to know that. But for now, I'm glad to hear that Dale and many of you are digging the show and Daredevil's gaining some new fans, which is a really exciting side effect. Next up is an email from the man, the myth, the legend, the host of Earth Destruction Directive, Luke Giaconetti, who sent an email with the title Hornhead vs. Skullhead. And before I jump into the email, I do want to give an apology to W. Blaine Dowler. I did tell him I would forward emails regarding his episodes. This one does pertain to that. I did not, just because I have a Swiss cheese memory. 
So I want to publicly apologize that I did not forward this to W. Blaine Dowler. But Luke writes, Dave, just listen to W. Blaine Dowler's guest spot talking about the Stuntmaster. I definitely appreciated the insight to this much maligned character. After this episode, I did some reading on the appendix to the Marvel Universe, which is Marv, M-A-R-V-U-N-A-P-P dot com. And was surprised to see that his face turn mostly stuck. I am surprised that no one picked him up as a one-shot bad guy down the road somewhere, which I thought was nice. Good to see a character development for a minor baddie stick. Every time I learn about a minor character like this, I try to see how he could work in a modern context. Stuntmaster is a reformed villain who is an expert in motorcycles and stunt driving could work as a supporting character. Being a mechanic for superheroes seems the obvious choice, but I could see him also working as a very low-level vigilante, maybe having settled in a small town, defending it from the little bit of crime that takes place there. As far as Daredevil losing out on a marquee villain versus Johnny Blaze being a hero, I think the question needs to be asked, which benefits the Marvel Universe as a whole? DD having a great bad guy or Ghost Rider being a hero? I lean towards the latter over the former, considering how poorly this era of Daredevil is remembered, who's to say that Blaze would not have been similarly forgotten had he been in that book instead of his own? With the move towards Miller's street-level urban noir, would a guy with a flaming skull and a motorcycle powered by a demon have fit in? Would we have gotten the extremely successful revamp of Ghost Rider as Dan Catch along with Blaze in 1990s? Would Marvel currently be publishing a series entitled Ghost Rider? It's hard to say, but I have to imagine the answer to these questions is no. I think Marvel and the readers as a whole benefit more from having Ghost Rider being a hero. But that's just my opinion. I could be wrong, and this is not a Ghost Rider podcast. I will sign off and say thanks again for the show, and thanks for helping me learn about Stuntmaster Luke. All credit to W. Blaine Dowler for doing that episode, because listening to it really opened my mind to the Stuntmaster, and, you know... Gave me a few tidbits about Ghost Rider I didn't know. Admittedly, I'm not a big Ghost Rider fan. At best, I've had minor dalliances with the character. I don't hate him, but I've never been particularly drawn to him. However, Stuntmaster was somebody I didn't like prior to Blaine doing that episode and turned me around in terms of perspective on him. And yeah, I think he could be a great supporting character right now, and I love your concept of him settling down in a small town being sort of a suburban vigilante. Of course, actually, I picture a town in the desert, very desolate, very much like Daredevil Reborn. But he could have been the cooter of the Marvel Universe. Could have helped the Punisher here and there, Captain America, kind of upstaged S.H.I.E.L.D.'s mechanics. I can see the potential. In fact, I may want to do some fan fiction now. Again, Ghost Rider. Stripped of the origin that was to be in the Daredevil comic, where he is assigned to take out Daredevil because he's doing good works in the Devil's name. This caused the character to have a really long gestation period before he hit stride. I mean, the 70s was an off-and-on situation for Ghost Rider. And it, he did eventually find his path, especially when he was with the Defenders, in my opinion. But yeah, in the 90s, when Dan Ketch took over, that's when Ghost Rider became a phenomenon. Sadly, we seem to always go back to Johnny Blaze, who was the lesser of the successful Ghost Riders. I wonder why that is. Anyway, you're right, this is not a Ghost Rider podcast, but... I should probably do a crossover at some point down the line. But thank you, Luke, for sharing your thoughts. Again, apologies to Blaine. I'm sorry I did not get this to you. That was just mea culpa. Next up is an email from Eric Von Royer. Subject line, question on the Punisher's relationship to Daredevil. Note the subject line. Eric Rice, Dear Dashing Dave, something that I noticed when Matt met Rico. You know the one with all the disco moves is that Rico puts his hand out and says, Put her there, sport. To a blind man. How is he supposed to know where there is? 
This can be excused seeing as how he may not have known he was blind, even though the sunglasses and cane should have given it right away. But it is Heather who is the true jerk in this situation. When Matt doesn't take the hand, she accuses him of acting uncivilized. She berates a blind man for not knowing where the hand that he's supposed to be shaking is. Now some of you might be saying she knows he's Daredevil and has sonar sense. Well, he's trying to keep other people from knowing that, and Heather sure is not helping. So I say, Peshaw to Heather. Signed, Eric Von Royer. Eric, that is an awesome observation. And yeah, at first it seems like Rico's being a jerk, but let's be honest, Heather's definitely being a bigger one. Credit where credit's due. Rico didn't seem to be quick on the uptake. He's not going to take in the cane and the glasses because, well, he sees some weird stuff down at Studio 54. And I think, honestly, Heather wanted a reason to be mad at Matt, whether she was starting to feel something for him, he looked good that night in his ruffled tux, what have you. But she basically wanted to pick a fight. And remember I said to make note of the subject line, well, there's nothing about the Punisher in this, Eric. Maybe you're just seeding something for a later email. Either way, I do appreciate that observation. That made me laugh a lot. And next up is an email from Mark Adams, subject line, enjoying in context of color. Note the UK spelling, there is a U in color. Mark writes, I'm not a natural Daredevil fan, but stumbled across your show and rather enjoy being educated about the hero who I only briefly read in his own comic. I do like your style and enjoyed it in the early days of Pad Podcast as well. My only problem is in what context to listen to the show. I find that shows with the banter of two hosts, such as the Fantasticast and X Aspirations, do well to relieve the pain and suffering of jogging. But I find single presenter shows such as your own and Quarterbin Podcast are best for monotonous tasks, such as driving, cleaning, and as I discovered today, while listening to episodes 7 and 8, great while decorating. Until I dropped my MP3 player into the tin of paint. The whole way in, and I know the question that is on your lips, so the answer is Egyptian Sands. You do a fabulous podcast that educates and entertains me, and I am glad to be a part of your listenership, so keep up the good work, Mark Adams. P.S. My MP3 player survived. I'm glad you added that P.S. because otherwise I would have emailed you back and said, hey, what, what's up with the MP3 player? But I do agree, context is important when listening to a show. To me, dual hosts and single presenter are two different creatures. And I struggle with it myself. And the reason that this show normally runs about half an hour, 40 minutes, is because of that struggle. Listening to two, two people have a conversation is a little bit more engrossing a little bit more in need of our attention because there are different viewpoints potentially being discussed. Single presenter means that you're listening to one person potentially drone on and on and on. So for me, in creating the show, I abbreviate that. I get in, I get my points made, I get out. As a listener, single presenter seems like something I want to listen to when I have something on my desk that I need to concentrate on a little bit more because I can wander in and out of a single train of thought rather than that discussion where two trains of thought are being presented. But I'm very glad to hear the MP3 player survived. That's the important thing. So thank you very much for your email, Mark. Next up, we have another M name. We have an email from Matt, whose subject line is simply theme song. Matt writes, I love your show. I gotta know who sings the Daredevil song during your intro. Thanks so much, Matt. That is Man Without Fear by Icarus. They were a prog rock band who did a whole album called The Marvel World of Icarus, which had songs based on Marvel. Yes, many of them did involve the jazz flute. I'm glad people took to that song. I wasn't sure how that was going to go over. 
the thing is, when creating the show, knowing that I would need some sort of theme, some music, I didn't find a whole lot that was Daredevil-centric. It's not like Superman where you've had multiple movies, multiple scores, and TV shows. Batman the same thing, or even the Hulk for that matter. Daredevil had a score to his 2003 movie, but it never would have played right. So when I found this song, I knew it was the one, and I'm glad people are digging it. Uh, I looked it up on YouTube. Just look up Marvel World of Icarus. Or if you want to, you can add Man Without Fear to it. But thank you for emailing in, Matt. Glad you liked the theme song and the show it's attached to. And that wraps up this week's episode of Dave's Daredevil Podcast. Next week, Matt faces down his own inner demon, quite literally, as Heather hits the town and the Daily Bugle finds itself in some trouble and they may need Nelson and Murdoch. Until then, remember, justice may be blind, but it can see in the dark. He is the one they call a man without fear Never far away whenever things is near You have been listening to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, which can be found at daredevilpodcast.com. The show can be subscribed to via the RSS link, iTunes, and other podcatchers, or streaming on the Stitcher app, giving you instant access to a wide range of audio programs. Email for the show can be submitted through the contact form on the website or directly with the address dave at daredevilpodcast.com. The show is all over social media. On Facebook, you can find it by searching Dave's Daredevil Podcast, on Twitter with the username at Dave Weeder, and on Tumblr at daredevilpodcast.tumblr.com. Daredevil and related characters are copyright Marvel Comics, and any sound clips or music are for entertainment purposes only. This podcast does not make any money on these elements and is simply made for entertainment. All copyrights lie with the copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. I am Dave, and thank you for listening to Dave's Daredevil Podcast. Hear his name